Hello, dancers. Today's show is proudly sponsored by Minding the Gap. You guys all know that mental health for dancers matters. You're on board. You want to see the culture in your studio change, but where do you start? Enter Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is dedicated to seeing mental health regarded with the same seriousness as physical health and dance culture, and they come armed with solutions. Whether it's helping you craft policies and procedures that protect the mental wellness, that protect the mental wellness of dancers and staff, consulting to build a robust mental health program in your school or company, or providing mental health skills workshops for your students and teachers, Minding the Gap has you covered. They bring the expertise of the best dance mental health experts in the world to you. For more information, visit www.wearemindingthegap.org. Hello, dancers. Today, I spoke with the brilliant Alice Ashvanden. She's the owner of On Point Consulting, a career and mindset coaching business just for dancers. Alice is a ballet geek who tried and failed to put away her point shoes. Does that sound familiar to some of you? It does to me. She danced professionally with Alberta Ballet and Zurich Ballet, and after a successful career, went on to university to complete her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and a Master of Social Work and Counseling. She taught ballet, Pilates, and bar, and worked in the education sector before pivoting to her dream role, a mindset and career coach for dancers. She works one-on-one -on -one and in small groups with aspiring and professional ballet dancers, and even with some parents of young dancers, helping them to gain the courage, confidence, and clarity to thrive, both inside and outside the studio. We spoke about all things dancer wellness. It was a really wonderful conversation, chock full of tips and advice for students, for dancers, for teachers, and for parents. I loved this conversation and it was so fun. So continue listening to Geek Out with us. Here you go. Hello, hello, dancers, and welcome back. I'm so excited to introduce to you today the owner of Endpoint Consulting, Ms. Alice Ashbanden. Hello, Alice. Hello. Thank you so much for having Hi. me today, Sarah. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited to speak to you as well. Um, I just, I've been following a few of the things that you've done, um, you know, like through Instagram and stuff. And then I know you reached out to me and just within about 30 seconds, I was like, absolutely I need to have this person on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I'm, I mean, that's, that's kind of my gig. I, um, I talk a lot about mental health and I'm a career and mindset coach for dancers. So I really work to support dancers, mostly from their transition from student through to professional um, and particularly with COVID over the last 18 months, there's been a lot of support needed in this, this world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know I definitely could have used those services when I was a young dancer, for sure. Um, so very excited to talk to you today. So to get us started, could you just give us a brief overview of your relationship with ballet uh, throughout the years and what, if you'd like, what role your mental health has played throughout different seasons of, of your dance career? and also how you became to be a career and mindset coach. Sure, so I, like many of you, um, probably put on my ballet shoes at age five and went along to ballet and loved it, did one class a week, then I started doing more classes a week, maybe when I was nine or 10. And I really, I think as well, many people would identify with, with this idea of not deciding I wanted to be a dancer, but just feeling like I had to be. And 
for me that came quite early and so there wasn't really a, a decision process in my mind or a discussion with my parents I I kind of um, I danced and danced and danced and then at age 16 I went full-time so in Australia where I'm from you combine your school with your with your ballet studies then and dance you know kind of like a school day and then you do your schooling in the evening um, and this was you know the, the, the pressure changing from that part-time training to full-time training was really huge and in Australia at the time there were very few services for dancers um, to support beyond the studio so we had an amazing, um, I had the most amazing teacher and, you know, she she was artistically really, really excellent. And, and everything we learned in the studio really set us up for a career, except that we didn't learn two things. One was what to do when we finished our training and how to transition out of student to professional. So how to try to find a job. And the other one was to how to look after our, our, our mental health and our, our kind of well-being um, emotionally as well during this time because as we all know so much pressure imposter syndrome performance anxiety all of these things that we all struggle with and no real um, strategy or tactics how to deal with it um, personally so for me this was um, this it was always something I struggled with a little bit like a lot of us do but I, I kind of just worked my way through it you know many dancers I think are very determined they shut their mouths, they stay in their lane and they just keep on going. And so I did that and I had a successful audition tour when I was 19 and went to Canada to Alberta Ballet. And here I hit a huge roadblock because I got there and uh, I think it was about four weeks into the season, my joints started to flare up and it became known that I, uh, within about a month, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis which is um, a, an autoimmune disease and very difficult for a ballet dancer because it affects wow. the joints. Yeah, yeah and so, there's not, not a whole lot you can do about it. I mean, there, there are some therapeutic, you know, diet changes, I'm sure, and things like that. But wow, that's really difficult to manage at such a young age, especially. Yeah, I mean, this was this was a fork in the road moment for me. And it's it's um, I, I guess I was I was told that I wouldn't dance again, but again, like many dancers, I didn't listen to that, and I went right. How am I going to make this happen? And so, I um I, I followed the advice of doctors, but I really, you know, I was bedridden for six months, and then I flew back to Australia and and went through recovery here, um, and I was medicated to a stage where I could I could get back into the studio and work my way back up. Interestingly, I think this setback really helped me because coming back into the studio, I was desperate and hungry for it because I really, I knew I had a taste. I had a month long taste of what it was like to be a professional dancer to achieve my yeah. dream um, and then see it all taken away from me. So um, I did everything I could to get myself back in the studio and, and came back, I think, um, mentally stronger out of this um, and, and did another audition tour. I decided to go to Europe this time and landed a group with solo position here in in Zurich where I am now um, with Zurich Ballet. And um, that, that sort of begun a journey for me of, of uh, quite an isolating time where I, I put my best foot forward in the studio, but I really didn't have a lot of support outside of the studio. And I didn't have a lot of awareness as a dancer of how to look after my own wellbeing, which again, I see really, really often um, in, in dancers, particularly early career dancers. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I'm a teacher now, so, um, and I think I've even learned 
some skills over the years of like how to help my dancers who want to go on to college programs or go on to professional programs, like how to help them transition. But you're right. There are so few, especially when I was dancing, there was nothing. (laughs) I mean, I think I sat down with the principal of my school and a few of my teachers and they helped me um, navigate the college process and then the company audition process and like how to decide where I want to go and things like that. And so I had that support, but as far as, you know, mental health and recently I spoke with Dancers Connect DE mm-hmm. um, and all of the resources they're providing for German dancers is amazing, yeah, amazing. but mm-hmm. no one teaches you how to, they teach you how to dance, but they don't teach you how to be a professional dancer. Absolutely not. You know, And it's, it's two different things entirely. And that's, that's something I'm really passionate about too, because we focus, we train our dancers in Australia beautifully in the studio they come out you know with with amazing technique um then they don't necessarily have anywhere to send it because they don't know how to to, to set up an audition tour or they, yeah. they don't you know they get to an audition and they can't perform because they haven't learned the skills around auditioning which are many and, mm. and quite different to the daily work that we do so um that that kind of cushioning work around the training of the dancer is really crucial and really underdeveloped I think yeah. So then let's transition into your business mm. and tell, tell us about your practice and what services you offer and what that sort of looks like for different dancers at, at different points in their career, whether they're a student getting ready to graduate, whether they're a parent of a student, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about that later, mm-hmm. um, or a current professional dancer, maybe they're, you know, getting towards the end of their career. What do those different stages in a dancer's career look like uh, within the context of your services? Yeah, so I I actually started on point consulting when I I met with a friend, a friend's daughter who who said to me, look, I just, I'm I'm graduating next year, I don't know what to do. And I said, oh, let me tell you, you know, nothing I love more than trying to help people when I feel like I, I might be able to. And so we had a couple of coffees and then I met with her friend as well who also wanted some similar advice and I thought hey there's actually a lot of students around not really knowing how to how to go through this transition um, process so this was three years ago I, I started on point consulting kind of on the side of, of an, some other work I was doing actually in education policy at the time so un, undance related um, and and I was pregnant as well so things were pretty busy in my world but I just was really missing that connection to ballet and so I started this thinking, you know, let, let's see where it goes. And then quite quickly, there was a lot of a lot of demand for that real career coaching side of things, particularly out of Australia. And so I started um, one-on-one coaching with dancers, really working with them to create a strategy for um, their auditions and for their for their short-term future. Um, also, that you know, embedded in that is is a lot of mindset work. So goal setting, strengths identification talking about some of those challenging things like performance anxiety and imposter syndrome, things that can really pull you down in, in an audition setting. So trying to kind of maximise a dancer's ability to do auditions well and also um, maximise their chances of success by sending them to the right places for them um, and, and, and sort of knowing, giving them a bit of a path. Um, and that, so, so that's kind of where my one-on-one coaching sits. And then out of this last year, there was there was um, quite a lot of demand for a similar service. So I created an online program called Accelerate, which I'm excited to be launching a second round of quite soon. And Accelerate kind of touches on um, some of those topics, but in in a kind of a more of a general way. So it's less of a personalized service. 
it's more content there's a, a consultation at the beginning and the end and we talk we talk about again that kind of strategic transition from student to professional um, for professionals I offer mindset coaching so that's really more of the okay you've got there you're in the career you know probably early career um, how are you coping how are you doing how are you coping with the change from, from being a student into the professional world um, I know there's a lot of pressure not a lot of support in a lot of companies so that's where the one-on-one -on -one coaching with them comes in and finally one last thing that I've just started up um, is a mindset masterclass for schools so this is really exciting for me because this is reaching more people kind of in a more efficient way, I guess, and coming into schools or virtually at the moment, obviously, and talking about um, some of these issues with, with probably more of a mental health focus, um, just to try to, to try to make sure that schools also are aware of the issues that their students might be facing. I love that. So many different aspects that you're able to address with so many different dancers. That's wonderful. So... We all know as dancers, whether we are 18 year olds auditioning, whether we're in the middle of our career, whether we're teachers trying to keep the studio afloat, that uncertainty is a really big part of being a dancer. I mean, outside of COVID, it doesn't matter. You never know from one year to the next where you're going to live. You know, a lot of, a lot of dancers, you know, might go from one yeah. company to the next and go across the world. So. Uncertainty is very, very stressful, and it's sort of built into the job description of a dancer, if you think about it. And of course, this pandemic yeah. has amplified that so much, so much. So what are some practical strategies that you help dancers to navigate that uncertainty and to manage their stress levels so that they can make informed and level-headed decisions about what's happening to them? Yeah, well, I guess the, this uncertainty brings up the feeling and, and it's true that there is very little that's in our control at the moment. And like you, you just touched on, there's very little in our control as dancers a lot of the time anyway, because it's someone else making the decisions for us um, and it's someone else's opinion of us that matters. But the thing that the main thing that I work with my dancers on at the moment is controlling what you can control and knowing that it's not going to be everything, but where there's something you control, you can control, pull that out and plan around that. So, for example, today in a one-on-one -on -one coaching session with a dancer um, in Australia, so that she's she's chasing, she's facing this challenge of not being able to get out of the country because the borders are closed. So she maybe she's hoping to audition um, in Europe next year, um, but you know it's entirely out of her hands as to whether she can actually come. So what do we do at the moment? Okay, we look at options within Australia. And we look at the hard kind of things that we can do now, like creating a, a really good audition video, um, making sure her CV is really excellent, um, making sure her photos are really good, creating that CV package that is um, you know, top quality so that when, if and when she's able to go, we're ready. She feels a little bit more prepared. Um, she feels like she is doing something and that's crucial. I think when, when you're surrounded by uncertainty, you can be paralyzed by this feeling of, I don't know what to do and I'm doing nothing. That's not true. We just have to pull out the things that we can control and we have to work around around those and, and sort of focus on those. I love that. Um, that makes me think of the, the locust of control. Is that something that you work with? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 I love that visual. I think 
guys, I might grab a visual from the World Wide Web and slap the put that up in stories uh, when yeah. this episode comes out because it's a really great visual for people to really latch on to the things like you said that material things that you can do what you can control um and then just sort of how do you though help dancers to let the other stuff go that's my question i guess you don't let it go you by shifting the focus it's it's in the background more so it kind of it kind of you know by by drawing the focus away it's all it's going to be there it's still there it's it's very present but it's like, um, you know, if, if you, I don't know, if you think about it, you know, when we say don't look at the crocodile, you look at the crocodile. So rather than saying don't think about the uncertainty, we say, hey, let's think about your CV package. And then immediately there's, there's some work created there that the person can think about. And um, and, and, and that that I think sparks some yeah. hope as well because you're kind of, you're, you're in the process of, of getting ready for auditions in a way that you still can, even if you're not able to attend the auditions at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that also makes me think of um, this concept of the the brain's reticulating, mm -hmm. is it the reticular activating system? That whatever you focus on, um, whatever you focus yeah. on is what you will Absolutely. start to notice more of. And so if you're focusing on the now and you're focusing on developing your CV, getting your audition audition stuff together. And for this person in her particular case, thinking yeah. about Australian auditions, she might actually come across an audition that she had met, would have never even come across before because she's paying more attention to those things. So she might have an opportunity to come, come across her way that may never have come yeah. across her way because she just wasn't open yeah, to it. Absolutely. So I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. So talking about dancers in their day-to-day -day life um, with or without COVID, you know, it's, it is a stressful lifestyle. You know, it really, really is. It's difficult on your body. Of course, um, we have to navigate some work situations that may, may or may not be toxic, which is very stressful. Um, so there's a lot of ins and outs of navigating a professional career but what are some ways, practical ways that dancers can sort of alleviate some of that stress and have, I would say, a more balanced life? Yeah, I think balance, yeah, balance is a really great word to have there because one of the one of the things I really focus on with my dancers is getting them to identify some of the ways that they can build in healthy habits or routines into their daily life that is not necessarily focused on on their training or on their performance so by healthy I don't mean healthy eating you know that's a whole other thing and we could go on about that but that's not my area my area is more thinking about um, what can you do in your day that makes you feel good and that how can you embed that into your daily daily life or daily routine that it, it just becomes something that you do without thinking about it too much but it it helps your day become I guess a little more balanced so an example would be you know obviously we all say let's meditate let's do yoga let's do pilates whatever I, I would I would ask a dancer to choose something that it doesn't even have to be something that is kind of traditionally healthy in that way but what makes you feel good is it a bath is it painting your toenails which for dancers can sometimes be a bit weird but you know is it knitting? Is it a particular TV show? You know, dancers have a lot of trouble relaxing um, and for obvious reasons, they're on the go, 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 go. They always feel pressure to be moving, to be sort of working, 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 but 
10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour of sitting with something that you love that isn't to do with ballet can be so valuable to build in some balance and just to let your brain kind of relax out of it for a moment, even if you have to come back into it. So, you know, even, even in a full day of training, put on a podcast that, you know, I love this podcast, but maybe put on a podcast that has nothing to do with ballet and go around the block and hear about people's dogs or like whatever floats your boat. But um, just, just let your, your brain get away from it for a moment. And if it can be accompanied by physical activity that is not demanding, but makes you feel good, like stretching, yoga, walking, um, you know, I, I feel like that's a great combination. So but building those habits yeah. into the daily routine so that there's something that you just do um, without feeling like you have to, I think is really important too. Yeah, I think that's really important as well. I know reflecting back on this sort of mindset that you so easily get sort of lost in as a very young dancer, that you have to eat, breathe, drink, bleed <laughs> ballet if you yeah. want to make it. Um I often heard the phrase when I was growing up, okay, Sarah, well, do you want a boyfriend or do you want to be a ballerina? Do you want to ex- go to the movies with your friends or do you want to da- be a dancer? Like, which one is it? And, and, and this type of messaging came from all different sort of angles, um, not any one particular yeah. person. And I think some of it potentially was also internal, internally said to me, you know, like I was saying it to myself, like, oh, well, I can't ever do this because I have to be at rehearsal or something like that. So talking about um, younger dancers, so sort of that age 14 to 18, um, how do you how do you help them to discover friends at school? How do you help them to discover that balance? Um, is that does that look different for those younger age groups? Yeah, I think for them, it's about being quite prescriptive with them and saying, okay, let's down, let's write down five things that you like to do that have nothing to do with ballet. Okay. All right. So now we'll look at the top two. Okay. Can we do one of those things today? And then can we do the other one tomorrow? So it's, it's really stepping it out and, and making sure that um, they're aware that it's not something that they're feeling like they naturally want to do. But, um, you know, if they put it into their day, it's going to become a little more natural. And just picking up on what we what you were talking there about, you know, the boyfriend, no, no boyfriend, this, that very binary thinking that dancers have. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. a fear that that you only have so much capacity. And if you add in something from the outside world, it has to necessarily take away from your dancing. This is not true. And I remember very clearly when I went into a company environment for the first time, I was like, whoa all these people are like really normal. Like they do stuff. They, they, you know, I'm this super bunhead 19 year old in Alberta, just trying to do my very best, like shaking with just perfectionism. And here's these dancers around me much more seasoned who kind of have lives. Some of them have children, animals, houses, gardening, they do stuff. And that just enriches their career more and enriches their dancing more. But it took me, I, I, in fact, I don't think I really ever achieved that as a dancer. I was so monofocused. It's only that I've, now that I'm out of it, looking back into it, I think, wow, if I had have opened up the doors a little more for something else, I think that would have really worked for me as a dancer. Yeah, absolutely. So in your programs, where your newer programs, where you're going into schools to help sort of implement these healthier strategies for teachers and directors? Is that part mm-hmm. of what you're talking about and how to 
help schools to encourage balance? Yeah, for sure. That's something that I'm going to be touching on because I think um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. We know that for sure. Um, but but just allowing people to, you know, I, I believe strongly in, in this idea of training smart, not hard. Obviously, we're going to train hard. Your dancers, you know, it's, it's in us to go hard. Yeah. But there is something to be said for training smart. And that can be, you know, sometimes replacing um, replacing bar with Pilates or, you know, mixing up the training a little bit. Physi physically, that can get more out of the dancers um, because it just allows them to, you know, to have a little bit more breathing room and allows their body to have a little bit more of a rest and then do something different. Um, and, yeah, that, that's something I think that schools need to be aware of as well, that there are several ways to skin a cat and just going really hard and doing two-hour classes followed by one-hour point class followed by half an hour lunch break followed by three hours of rehearsal. That's not good for anyone. Yeah. I was on a, I was in a, I'm in a couple of different, you know, Facebook teacher groups as a lot of us yeah. are listening who are teachers. And I see a lot yeah. of questions, people asking advice, you know, is I think the most recent one I saw was, I, I don't want to misquote this person. I think it was four hours, maybe it was five. Is five hours too long for an eight-year-old in one day? Oh. And I was just like, oh God. Oh dear. <laughs> I was like, yes, it's way too long. I mean, you talk to any, any An eight year old, probably two hours is too long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the pieces that's missing is um, a, a strong background in child development. Yes. I mean, I don't have a, a background in child development. Um, I've read books, but I don't have a background in it. So, you know, the challenging thing with dance, I think one of the challenging things with teaching dance is that there's often not a requirement for that type of training or education, especially in the United really? States, what yeah. I know. Um, there are organizations like NDEO where you can get, you know, professional development courses, and I think those are wonderful, um, but it's not a requirement. Yeah. You know, it's not something that artistic directors are like, okay, well, if you want to work for us, you have to be certified in XYZ. And I think these types of programs would be, and, and your type of program that you're bringing into studios really kind of sheds light on the inefficiencies and okay. all of the, the holes and the gaps in education that our dance teachers have. I think that that leads us to the broader issue that often is the case with, with dance teachers, um, that it, they, they're often chosen because they're ex-dancers. And, you know, as a former dancer, you know, I have done some, some training for teaching and I enjoy teaching, but um, there is a lot that I need to know in order to teach. It's not just about knowing how my body, you know, moves and then being able to tell other people. There's a lot, you know, of other things in terms of exactly what you were saying, development and, um, you know, overall the holistic health, a lot of things that, that really aren't um, much of a focus. And, and I, I, I see a bit of a change coming up with that, but I think it needs to happen faster. Yeah, I agree for sure. So I'm still kind of interested. I mean, I'm interested in everything you do, but with these school programs that you're putting together and you're going in, um, have you had experience yet with, because I will say that the classical ballet world specifically has quite a few teachers still who are, for lack of a better phrase, old school. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. and have very fixed mindsets and are not willing to consider that they are bringing their own baggage into the studio or willing to consider that things that they say might be hurtful or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is, fill in the blank. Um, so I'm wondering, like, as these teachers are still teaching and will be teaching for the foreseeable future, what can we do, uh, you know, from a managerial standpoint for artistic directors who might have great teachers on their staff who have a great depth of knowledge about technique, about the history of ballet and all of these things, but have these big holes? What are some tools that we can give our artistic directors to help manage that kind of situation? Yeah, so I think structured professional development and upskilling is really crucial here. And the difficult part about that is it doesn't really exist very widely. So um, thinking about my own work with these mindset masterclasses, it's a very self-selecting group of teachers who I work with because they're the ones who see my work and say, yes, I want that for my students. We connect and off we go. Many of them, you know, and I contact quite broadly, many of them, if they're not interested, uh, that, that's okay. But there's also, you know, they're, they're not going to, come to me if they have that sort of narrow thinking. Right. So I think it needs to be normalized that dancers, particularly elite dancers going into full-time training, they need to have wraparound support. You know, we don't send Olympians to your know, gymnasts or, or any Olympian to the Olympics with just their teacher. They have right. full <laughs> wraparound support. And dancers are, you know, elite dancers are at that level physically, emotionally, mentally, and often there's, there's a huge gap in, in their training um, that, that goes beyond that, just their physical training. So I think it needs to become the norm um, and it needs to, you know, it needs to become quite prevalent in kind of those more accepting schools. And then it needs to become something that is expected from teachers and parents. Yeah, yeah, especially parents, you know. I think um, parents have a really difficult role um, I personally do not have children yet. Um, and I don't know, I think I would be fine if they wanted to dance. That would be totally fine with me. I definitely wouldn't push it, obviously. But it's interesting because you've got, in my mind, and, may, and correct me if, if this is too binary, but I see two groups of parents. You have parents who used to dance and parents who have never danced, <laughs> you know? Yes. And even right. parents who, yeah, even parents who used to dance maybe they didn't go through a pre-professional program, maybe they were more a recreational dancer, but they still have a rudimentary idea of, you know, what, what the expectations are. I'm really interested in your work with the parents because whether they have a background in dance or not, they've got to know when their child is in a pre-professional program, for example, and something just isn't right, whether it's a teacher making comments about their child's body, whether it is, um, you know, not enough breaks being built into the day, all of these things. Um, how can parents best support their students, especially those who are not in a healthy learning environment? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that they need to expect from their environment what they would expect from their own professional environment. So I find it very interesting. I, I've worked with, with a lot of parents and I would say the majority of them are um, established professionals outside of the ballet world who, you know, often are real high flyers in, in whatever, whatever their work is. 
and they understand, you know, they understand the rules of, of a professional organisation. Um, and then their children are in these environments that are nothing like that. And the parents, somehow there's this divide between what they expect from their world and what they expect from the, the dance world. And there's this, this kind of unspoken agreement that it's okay for, for, for certain behaviours to fly in the ballet world that we would never accept outside of the ballet world. So I think the first thing is to, to accept, uh, to expect a, a really kind of professional approach from the school and advocate for your child because schools often aren't, aren't used to parents speaking up and often they're completely unaware. You know, a, a director may not even be aware that a teacher in, in whatever class has been saying X to, to some kid. And if they're not aware of it, no, they can't fix it, right? And so I think that um, that it's it's really true that, that the dancing parents, they're not the ones I generally work with. It's the parents who come to me and say, I've got no idea about ballet. Mm -hmm. I'm a consultant. Um, you know, in, in my job, it's not like this. But I just wonder, is it okay to be told, you know, that she needs to lose five kilos right to her face? And I'm like, no, mostly oh, not. Dear. And, and in front of the rest of the class probably too, yeah, on yeah, top of it. Often. Yeah. Oh. So management of these sensitive issues is is really underdeveloped in schools a lot of the time. Um, and 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 just the, the work around, you know, also working with parents. I think parents are often shut out because schools don't know how to work with parents. So there's this real lack of, of kind of the middleman. So if mm -hmm. you're a teacher and you're not kind of a business person and you're not kind of an audience facing, front facing person, you need to have someone in your school who is who is going to be there for the parents, who is going to have those conversations with them, who is, who is, you know, open to questions, has an inbox that they're going to be answering in. The, you know, there's, you don't want to be sending your child into a, a building and not having any idea what's going on and then picking them up six hours later and saying, how was it? And they say, good, mum. You know, We're fine. Fine, <laughs> all good. Um, yeah, that's, that's not enough. For most parents, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they get their noses in when it's not necessary. But I do sure. think that as a parent, you have you have the right to know what what your child's education is um, looking like. And parents in regular schools have a lot more rights, I think, than parents in yes. school. Yeah, yeah. And so this needs to be changed a little bit from the ground up. I agree. I agree. And it's interesting because, and I've made this analogy before, but certain things that a lot of parents and and me admittedly you know as a teenager when i was training a lot of things that parents and students just accept is like oh well it's because um this person has been a great professional dancer and they have this resume so i have to listen to what they say because they're going to get me where i want to go yeah. whether i like it or not you know but I would love parents to compare their students' experiences in the dance studio with their students' experiences in school. Oh, yeah. So just like you were saying, you know, comparing their professional expectations to the school expectations, well, it's the same thing. Would you, would you expect or tolerate your child's fourth grade school teacher to tell them they can't have lunch because they're too fat? It's it's complete no-brainer. <laughs> Exactly. Not only is that not acceptable, but if it were to happen, there would be some sort of legal intervention. The person would be fired, I'm sure, you know, it, and on and on and on. But we accept those things every single day in the, in the dance studio, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and this is this is um, artists as gods type of vibe that we we see a lot. So um, you know, particularly also in the professional world, whereby someone who is like you said, artistically very interesting or very good at what they do, um, putting ballets on stages, that that doesn't necessarily um, demand of them to have, you know, a very professional attitude in the studio. So those do those things need to go hand in hand, particularly when you're working with children. It's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. So lots of encouragement for our parents out there. Um, I know it's not easy. Yes. <laughs> I know it can't be easy. It's really not, and and in the ballet world, for an outsider, a parent, a parents are so vulnerable. Particularly as the children, you know, become elite dancers, their world gets even further away from what their parents know. And and I think um, parents really have the right and should ask questions. And I have a lot of parents come to me and say, "Oh, I feel a bit dumb asking this," you know, and ask a basic question. And I'm like, yeah. "Of course you don't know this because the ballet world is, is. bizarre." <laughs> and yeah and if you don't ask you're not going to know and and it is very confusing so ask the questions seek help um ask your teachers they're people too and and you do have the right to know they're people too i love that they're, they're not just dancers who are living in a, a music box and pop up whenever you open it to teach your child <laughs> they are people too and and you do have the right to speak to them and get answers and ask questions and, yeah. um, you know, yeah. build some healthy boundaries too. I think that's really important. That's not something that we really do much of in the ballet world is building those healthy boundaries. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how often would you say um, this new, the parent consulting service, is this something newer to your practice? Um, this is something that grew in really organically from some of some of the one-on-one -on -one clients I had. Um, often, often it starts with a conversation with the parent as well, and then we split out. And most of the time, then then the child continues, you know, being a one-on-one -on -one client. But a couple of times, I've just based on on the conversations with the parents, I've reached out to them and said, "Hey, are you doing okay? Do you need to have, you know, do you have some questions for me?" And inevitably, they say, "Oh yes, can I please sit down with you for an hour? I, I've got a lot of questions." And it, it's, there's really a role for that because, um, like I said before, that the parents are they're pushed to the side a lot of the time. They're made to feel silly if they don't know basic things. And um, they, you know, they, they have, they need to learn too. Their, their children are in the studio learning a lot of things. Um, if the parents are really left outside, they, they're not able to understand the ballet world and therefore they're not able to support their kids as, they, as they're growing up. And becoming elite dancers so I think it's crucial to keep supporting I think also having that that missing piece of someone to sort of be the ballet Sherpa yeah. <laughs> you know to guide them up the the mountain yeah. is really important too to the parent-child relationship because a lot of turmoil can be caused between spouses yeah. between parent and child yeah. um because of this crazy bizarre world that they're trying to coexist yeah, in yeah and I think a lot of the time that you're absolutely right there needs to be kind of a voice of reason that they trust um, professionally who that they, they know understands the ballet world that they know understands the child the situation the child is in and also you know <laughs> my, my boys are five and two so I am not yet a ballet mom and I don't plan to be and I'm pretty sure they don't plan to be either <laughs> 
But now <laughs> with, you know, having children, oh, my goodness, I, I can't imagine some of the things that happen to ballet dancers happening to my boys. In fact, I'm quite glad that they're both into ninja rather than ballet. But um, we'll see. But, yeah, I think let's keep supporting those parents because it's, it's neat. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Well, as we're sort of coming to the end of our conversation, I would love to hear any final thoughts that you might have um, out to parents or dancers or students. Um, any kind of closing thoughts on, on your practice, on what people are going through right now with the, all the uncertainty, anything like that? Yeah, so my, the, the first thing that comes to mind to say is to drink in every moment that you have. Even though things are very challenging at the moment with COVID and very challenging anyway in this environment, um, you're not going to come across anything like that again. And I can say that I've, you know, I've taken my career and I've, I've kind of, I've created another career out of helping dancers. And this feels almost as good as being on stage, but nothing feels as good as being on stage. <laughs> and you don't realise that when you're in it. It's, it's really, it's very short. And whether you become a professional dancer or not, these formative years where you're training, you are gaining so many skills that can be transferable into other jobs. So I think that you need to, you know, value what you're doing, enjoy it as much as you can while you're doing it, because it's not going to last. And, and, and realize that you are, you're building yourself into something that is going to be something great, even if it's not a ballet dancer. So I've seen a lot of dancers, you know, get to that end, end of their training and they graduate and they decide not to, or it doesn't work out for them. And, inevitably within two years they're doing something else amazing because dancers are amazing they the yeah. way that they train the determination that they have um just they're, they're unlike anyone else and job job there's a lot of jobs I think that that people don't realize that they're going to be able to do but if you come into an office or into a physio practice or into a Pilates studio and, and you say, I'm a dancer and here's the things that made me a dancer, those people are going to want you. So even if it doesn't work out the way that you think it's going to work out, this is not lost time. And, and I, really want, I really want my dancers to kind of appreciate the moment that, that they're in because, yeah, it'll be over before you realise. In a blink, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, so before I let you go, um, mm -hmm. time machine time. Yeah. Alice, Alice is stepping into my time machine and we're going to go back to 14-year-old Alice. What would you tell yourself as a young dancer? Oh, wow. Okay. I think I would say to myself that you're okay how you are. You don't have to try to be someone else. You don't have to try to look like the girl next to you. You have value as you are identify your strengths and showcase them. So I spent a lot of time, like many other dancers, going, oh, I wish I had longer legs. Oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. Rather than going, hey, I've got pretty nice feet. Let's show them off. Hey, I've got yeah. really artistic. Let's go to the front of, of the adage um, section. You know, you everyone has something they're good at. Work, at. work out what it is. Get really confident in knowing what it is and showcase that and spend less time thinking about what you don't have. That's, that's what I would tell my 14-year-old self. Wow, that's so wonderful. And I think, I mean, really any teenager needs to hear that, not just dancers. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, that idea. I sort of had to learn that you can't be everything to everyone. 
And I think that same thing goes with mm -hmm. dancing. Just because you got a contract somewhere doesn't mean that's where you belong. And that's not necessarily where your strengths are going to be utilized the most. So I think that's really important training them from a very young age to understand their strengths and yes, work on their weaknesses, of course. That's going to come inherently though with ballet, I think. That goes without saying, dancers will work on their weaknesses. They will identify them and they will work on them and talk about them. But I start every consultation with, what are the top three things you're good at? And inevitably, my dancer just crawls away from her computer and hides. Um, yeah. Oh, she can't face the idea, but I get it out of her or him. And, you know, we get them thinking about that and walking into the studio the next day thinking, hey, what am I good at? That's what I'm going to show off today. Oh. And it's a very different, it's a very different attitude to have walking mm -hmm. into class like that. I love it. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I know I feel like I have a million other questions, um, but before I let you go, I would love for you to plug your social media website, any events you have coming up, how our listeners can connect with you. Yeah, sure. So my website is www.onpoint.org. So that's E-N-P-O-I-N-T-E, of course. Um, and I, I'm very active on Instagram. So over at OnPoint Consulting, um, I put out a lot of content, you know, really that kind of practical strategic mindset work. So a lot of things around goal setting and um, career journeys and where I think there's a resource that can, can help you guys. Um, I also have a Facebook page that I can be contacted through and coming up, like I said earlier, um, in terms of, you know, I've got my one-on-one -on -one coaching that goes all the time. I've got my mindset masterclasses that are available at any time as well. It's, there's a few more happening now that it's kind of the beginning of the year. I think a lot of teachers are wanting to get involved then. Um, and the other thing that I'm, I'm just about to launch um, late September is my Accelerate program, which is the second round of this. Um, super exciting. It's an eight-week program online with a, a consultation at the beginning and end. So it's sort of personalised to the dancer. And then there's a lot of rich content in that that you can sort of work through at your own pace. So um, my, my to-do list is forever growing, but it's really exciting. <laughs> I just feel, I, I, I feel so grateful that I, I get to wake up each day and work with dancers and, and hopefully make their path a little easier than mine was. So that's, that's what I aim to do. And, and it's, um, it's very fulfilling work. Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm very grateful for you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. You're making a huge difference in the dance world. And um, I only, I only hope this inspires more dancers out there who might be considering another career or, even students who, you know, think they would like to go to college, but still stay connected to dance. I mean, I think this is a wonderful career path and you're a real inspiration. So thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. And we'll have to, we'll have to chat again soon. Absolutely. There's, there's, All right. I, yes, I could go on for a little bit longer too, always. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks, Sarah. Okay. Bye. bye. Hey everybody. Oh man, that was a conversation I think I really needed to have personally, if not just for the sake of the podcast. I really love specifically our conversation about things that you can control and things you can't control because a lot of people, I think most people are experiencing a lot of uncertainty right now just because of the climate of, of COVID and all of that stuff. But within the context of being a professional dancer or 
thinking about becoming a professional dancer, I feel like that uncertainty is multiplied by a thousand. Not only do you have uncertainty about where you might be living in a, another year, if you're, you know, switching companies or on audition, you know, sending out audition videos and all of that sort of thing. And then you compound that with the uncertainty about not knowing if, if we're even going to be, you know, on stage. I know a lot of people are on stage right now, but that could change. So having somebody like Alice to sort of guide people, like I said in the episode, to be a, a ballet Sherpa, I think is so, so, so helpful. And especially for parents, I mean, gosh, I can't even imagine what it would be like to navigate the beginnings of a ballet career um, to support my child who wanted wants this thing that is just so difficult to achieve. You know, so, so few dancers actually are able to dance professionally and being a parent and trying to navigate the ins and outs of, of supporting that, man, that must be really difficult. So like I said in the episode, I'm so grateful that uh, people like Alice are out there in the world and they have the experience necessary but they also have the education and the tools necessary to help kids, to help dancers, to navigate this crazy world that we're in right now. So guys, please, 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 if you found this episode useful, reach out to Alice, get a call with her. All of her info is gonna be linked down in our show notes, just like always. And, you know, reach out to her. She can help you. She can really help you to navigate the ins and outs and the ups and downs of it all. And she's got the tools to back it up. So again, just so grateful for her work and um, hoping that you guys all found this episode to be enlightening. I really hope you did like the episode today. And if you did, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star rating and review. Follow the pod on Spotify and tell three friends all about the show. Three is all it takes to get the word out, and I would really, really appreciate it. Of course, you can also follow the pod on Instagram at Dance Better Podcast. And if you have any questions, particular topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, you can send me a DM there, or you can email me at dancebetterpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's all I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to learn with you all on the next episode. Bye!